Thanks for listening to the Mentors for Military podcast. Our goal each week is to bring you amazing content and guests. Support our podcast by visiting our Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash mentors, the number four M-I-L, to pick a tier that is right for you or donate any amount you like. It's that easy. You may even pick up some cool swag or have an opportunity to help us co-host an episode. Help us bring you an awesome episode each week by visiting patreon.com forward slash mentors for mill today. This podcast is sponsored by Uncanna, trusted natural solutions. Uncanna is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncanna team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncanna is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code MENTORS4MIL the number four, M-I-L, at checkout at uncanna.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. The Mentors for Military Podcast. Growing up and everything, you know, started probably off with, you know, like most people watching television shows or movies and, of course, John Wayne and Green Beret and seeing special forces in, in action and seeing them, you know, occasionally in newspaper articles or, you know, whatever the case may be. It was something that definitely stood out. And so having someone like yourself that, uh, you know, came from Fifth Special Forces Group back in Vietnam. That that's uh, something that I'm I'm really excited about talking with you about. So let's get back to those very humble beginnings of where you started off. You know, so where was it that you actually grew up, and was it uh, a military family, or how was it that you ended up going into the the army in the first place? Well, I'm uh, part of that long line, uh, heritage wise. In fact, I was just looking over some documents, and uh, interestingly enough, my lineage goes back. To World War One, and uh, the latest is World War Two. My grandfather was in the World War Two, in the Navy, and uh, I actually had a cousin, uh, Carlos Armijo is his name, who uh, was on the Bataan Death March, and he wow. uh, died at Cabana Tuan Prison. And I was looking up his records just a little while ago, uh, a letter that came in from uh, Douglas MacArthur. That's how I signed it. To, uh, to our relatives at that point in time. And the, uh, the lineage goes on. My father was a uh, career military, worked in the Army, and also uh, then I, when he got out, uh, kind of almost the day he got out, I went in. So that's how we go back. Uh, very patriotic family. Uh, whenever they play the national anthem, you know, I always get teared up, and uh, especially if uh, we're looking at the Olympics and some American is standing on the podium there. The imagery of uh, of that honor always highlights things. Veterans Day, oh, a tearful day, a cheerful day. Um, 
And of course, the Army Navy game. Kind of sad this year. Our Army lost, and uh, yeah, and Navy reclaimed the victory. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's some of the highlights of uh, of what I've been doing recently. Military family for sure. Yeah, most definitely. So where is it that you grew up then? What's home? Uh, home was the military. So that kind of covered the USA and around the world. Gotcha. We uh, started out in in. Um, I think it was California, Massachusetts. Uh, we were stationed in Japan for a while just after the war. I remember growing up there as a little boy and how fondly um, I was being carried by my uh, our maid up and down the stairs. Her name was Yoshiko. And that was uh, just a few years after the war and uh, had a little bean garden. And that was the first time I ever saw a typhoon come through. My bean garden wasn't there the next day. <laughs> I remember flying, remember flying kites as a little boy and going to uh, the shrine in, in Nico and all kinds of historical places like that right after the, after the war. So uh, I remember that episode very fondly. Uh, we traveled around in the military, and uh, my father was uh, assigned to uh, the missile system. So we were assigned to a lot of Air Force bases of all places, and uh, Always, always remember that. So where about in Japan was it? We were stationed in my early youth in Yokohama. My dad was Navy. He was a crew chief on seaplanes. Um, exactly where? I don't remember. Um, okay. Names that come to mind, uh, uh, Tokyo and uh, Kyoto and places like that. But, you know, actually, I don't remember. I do remember a couple words like Mizu as uh, what water and uh Domo Arigato, Ohio, oh, yeah. <laughs> and stuff like that, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All those, uh, you know, important words. It's sort of like uh, when I was stationed over in Germany. It was the, you know, how to how to order beer, how to get to the train station in case you're drunk and you can't uh, find your way there and stumble your way back to the CERN or the military base. And so, yeah, yeah, you learn enough just to be dangerous, don't you? Yeah, just, uh, you know, dangerous enough to ask for help, you know? <laughs> <laughs> So let's start it off. Uh, when you went down to the military branches, what, what drove you to the, the Army? It, you know, it actually was kind of interesting on how you have a, a, an epiphany, one of those aha moments in your life. Oh, yeah. And I remember my dad um, taking me out to see a group of guys that had some parachutes and fishnets and real stuff uh, from the Army that they were doing a display. And... Um, he said, you know, these are the, the Army's best soldiers. And uh, I said, well, who are these guys? And he said, these are special forces. And I thought, that stuck with me as a small boy. Of, you know, I was about 10 years old at the time. And I thought, man, they got all these cool parachutes and, and uh, survival fishnets, and, and they really look cool. So that kind of stuck with me as, uh, you know, a pinnacle. And uh, as the years rolled on, um, and the wars began, you know, uh, we actually set foot in Vietnam in the early, early seven, early fifties with, uh, operations, uh, hot foot and, uh, and the white star operations before Vietnam. And, um, I was, uh, I, I was in New Mexico military Institute at the time. That was where I graduated from high school. And, uh, Coming out of there, uh, I never really had much uh, of a goal. Uh, I uh, worked uh, in the mountains of uh, Colorado as a garbage man and as a as a bouncer. Uh, actually, I stood behind the real bouncer, and I just filled in the, the slot. But um, I didn't have a focus, and I uh, I went to uh, to a university, and I think I set 
probably the the most interesting record for the greatest, lowest grade point average uh, to come out of the first year. And so uh, that was around the time when we still had the draft. And, uh, of course, everybody was, you know, playing the odds. Uh, there were so many things that they were using to get out of the draft at that time. Oh, yeah. Such as, uh, you know, sexual preferences to being married, to being a theological, theological student to running away to Canada, to you name it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that wasn't fitting for me, honestly. And uh, so knowing that uh, my number was getting close to be called, called, and I, I decided that uh, I was going to go in the, in the Navy. And I went to the Navy recruiter and said, sorry, we're full. <laughs> and I went to the, the, the reserves and they were all full. And uh, the Marines said, you know, we're not full. <laughs> Looking said, for well, a few good men, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the few, and uh, we'll take anybody, you know, at that point in time. <laughs> and um, so uh, I thought, I'm going to outsmart them all. And I went to the Army, and there's a, a recruiter there with the Army Security Agency. And I thought, that's a pretty cool title. I mean, obviously, you don't want to uh, lose anybody that's in, in security. So they gave me options of... Um, enlisting and and uh i figured i'd go to a language school and be a you know really intelligence uh operator and i gave them the choice of um uh maybe french or something like that you know they weren't sending a lot of french speakers to vietnam yeah and um um the second choice i think was uh high speed morse interceptor whatever that was and and uh cook you know <laughs> <laughs> and the army you know Instead of enlisting in the Marines for two years or the Army for two years, I outsmarted them and enlisted in the Army Security Security Agency for four. And uh, wow, that had to be behold, a rarity. Lo and behold, I got my second choice, uh, which was high-speed mortise interceptor, a language I had no idea what it was. <laughs> and uh, as it turned out, they sent me off to uh, to train as a high-speed mortise interceptor. So I learned to copy Morse code, which ultimately led into one of my MOSs in Special Forces, which was uh, the 18 Echo, and that's the uh, the communicator, the uh, combo guy. Oh, yeah. And so that's sort of the, the, the initial beginning. Um, I froze to death in Fort Devens, and I ultimately um, decided that I didn't want to have anything to do with the Army Security Agency. And so we had a branch that was assigned to Special Forces. You had to go through your training, and... Um, and lo and behold, I ended up uh, getting um, the assignment to Special Forces with what is called the 403rd Special Operations Detachment. In other words, real high security clearance um, on Special Forces teams, kind of doing stuff inside the teams that we referred to as the spooks inside the the spooks. And uh, that's, uh, that's kind of way it developed. It, uh, it led to a lot of interesting twists in my time in Vietnam. In other words, uh, I had a very high clearance and um, I'll talk about how that gave me an, an end to the worst god-awful places you can imagine. Oh, I can only imagine. So you're you're sitting here attached or assigned to a unit that's part of the Special Forces group. At what point did you say, okay, this is more of what I want to do and I want to go through the selection and Q course? Well, it was an interesting twist because you are assigned for two years before you go to a Q course in the field in Vietnam. So consequently, you didn't have to do much uh, for a Q course. And they required you to do uh, some of the academics. 
and they kind of waived the Q course if you came out of Vietnam after two years with special forces. So I was one of the one of the few that uh, made my entrance that way. The uh, it's kind of little known, but there were a lot of guys that uh, were pulled out of uh, infantry and uh, other regions that uh, served in special forces that were highly qualified with their MOSs, and uh, consequently they were. In, entered in that in that process yeah okay so let me see if i got this straight if you had an mos and did you have to be also assigned to or attached to special forces in order to have that uh, requirement waived or is it that you, you could be in the military and as long as you serve two years in vietnam uh absolutely yeah the way it went is uh, if you were uh detached with special forces you still went through the same training at that point in time uh, you went through jump school and uh, everything before you got there. Okay. And so uh, you had a pretty good good knowledge of everything. And then as soon as we hit Vietnam, then we spent another uh, month or so uh, retraining uh, at a place called Han Tre Island. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever mentioned that, but mm -hmm. it's uh, where they broke your feet in, <laughs> broke your boots in, broke your back in rucksack up and down the mountains on this uh, island and ran patrols and went through the commo training and all the intel and uh, adapted to the climate adapted to the uh, uh, the rice and minnows and uh, you know our rations and stuff like that so now when you first came into special forces as i understand it didn't you first come in with the mos 91 bravo uh i came i came in with the mos at that time it was uh 05 uh delta uh, high-speed Morse interceptor okay. to special forces. And so it was in my time in Vietnam um, that I really kind of found my calling, um, which set the stage for the rest of my life. Okay. And that would be the medical portion. Yeah, so I, I guess while you're there, that what was it that made you go the 91 Bravo route, which is, of course, you know— uh, at that time frame was the previous 18 Delta, which was senior medical sergeant. So what was it um, that, that caused you to go down that path? Well, that's absolutely the question I wanted you to ask <laughs> because <laughs> it was, uh, it was like uh, surreal. Um, if you can imagine a young man at uh, 21 uh, years old um, on the A teams in Vietnam, uh, going on to operations and in areas completely controlled by the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese and seeing what our guys were doing on our, what we call our med caps, um, our medics, uh, not too much older than myself with literally uh, hundreds and hundreds of people that come over the mountains to these camps, mountain yards, specifically what I'm talking about and looking for the boxy. And the Boxy, of, of course, was the revered title for the Special Forces medic. Uh, Boxy is Vietnamese for doctor. And so watching uh, what was being done with uh, diseases and um, how valuable he was on operations, um, it really was a, an eye-opener. I wanted to be like that guy. Yeah. I really wanted to be like that guy. Yeah. So, I mean, of course... What was it that made you say, okay, this is this is it? Other than, <coughs> excuse me, honestly, you're sitting there and you're watching, you want to be that guy, but when did you pull the trigger, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Was it while you well, were I, in country or what did no, you go back? No, okay. it, uh, it wasn't until after I returned uh, that I was uh, slotted to go to the uh, 
to the medical program, and that uh, came a little bit later. Okay, well, after but your were a, first tour, or yeah. okay, I'm sorry. There were there were a lot of of moments that developed that uh, understanding of uh, of the role of the special forces medic, and uh, I can tell you that uh, on some of the operations, um, the the need for someone who could keep you alive, and how much people confided in that skill in terms of our our strike force. Um, in other words, the mobile strike force that I was assigned to for a period of time or on the uh, on the A teams uh, from I Corps to the Delta Four Corps. Um, it, it was the most valuable, in my opinion, the most valuable MOS on the team. And um, that came... At one time when I had a, uh, a Montagnard lady come to me, I was carrying a, a, an aid bag that, uh, not an aid bag, I was carrying a camera bag that had a red cross on it. Actually, it was an aid bag that I had my cameras in. Right. And uh, this Montagnard lady came up to me and she was so elated that when she saw the red cross on my medical bag, on my camera bag, and she held up her child to me who was smiling and and I I said no I'm not the boxy I'm not the boxy I tried to explain to her without understanding really what she was asking and then uh she shook the child again and the child was still smiling but the legs were dead the legs just hung oh. like spaghetti and what she wanted me to do was make her make her little boy walk And I couldn't do that, and I didn't know how to do that, but I knew that we had a guy that, that had the skill set to do that, and it was our boxy. And it was embarrassing for me, and I could see the disappointment in her face. Um, and one time after the other, you would see these things come to play. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I actually, let me share another story with you real quick. Um, uh, Mike Rose came to visit us. Uh, over at our special ops medical branch about a year ago. And Mike Rose uh, was special forces uh, medic. Uh, he was recently this last year or so awarded the Medal of Honor um, for his the combat actions that he was in. And Mike tells a story, and I'm going to share his story, um, about a wounded soldier who was definitely afraid that he was going to die. This was a uh, Cambodian, I believe, at the time. And Mike looked down at him and he gave him sort of the thumbs up, you know, you're going to be okay. Boxy's here. You'll be all right. And the guy, he said, Mike tells a story about how the men suddenly changed from almost going into shock to confidence and relaxation, just in knowing that the boxy was there. And wow. this was the, the, the image, um, that was revered most in, uh, in our operations. Anyway, I wanted to share that story. I mean, it's obviously Mike, but he told it to our our class, and um, was real proud to see him again. Phil, you, men mm -hmm. you mentioned about the, um, uh, the the medics being such a, a revered uh, skill within the teams, um, but I would imagine the the communicator most as well being a, a, a valuable skill, um, and particularly high speed Morse interceptor being something that's very skilled and, and possibly even 
only certain people could do. When you asked to change your MOS and go over to um, the, the medics trade then, how, how did the, the hierarchy take that? Were they supportive of that? Were they more interested in getting medics involved uh, and trying to backfill with communicators or was it a bit of reluctance? Um, there would have been some reluctance, but the way I approached it is, um, and, and I agree with you, the, the Kamo guy um, is, there are, there are two critical MOSs on the, on the team. <laughs> Yeah, you, you one is <laughs> one is the medic and the other is the combo. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, and they go hand in hand. And I always reinforce with my guys. I said, don't ever go out on operation if you haven't got backup communication, if you haven't tested your communication, and know the guy on the other end who's going to be there for you. And I don't know if you've looked at some of the imagery that I sent out, but you'll always see the guy on the radio. And over the years, that has became has become one of my passions is communicating and putting medical operations together in faraway places. And uh, I think in some of the photographs that we may share at some point, you'll actually see me on a, an HF radio transmitting out of Colombia in the jungles, um, out of Burma, uh, where we set up communication. Actually, I was communicating into China, of all places. And... Um, the art of communicating or where our old communicators could build a small set, unlike the, the parasets, you know, that they jumped in right. the jet bird teams into, uh, into France with, with the suitcases, the stuff we're doing now with the, uh, with the, the chips and the microprocessors. I mean, you could put Crazy. them literally in the palm of your hand. And, um, I built these small sets and you can get out about 300 miles with them on Morse code by stringing your little antenna in the tree. But anyway, to answer your question, how did I get into Camo? When I came back from Vietnam, um, I immediately went to, I was actually discharged, actually I didn't come back from Vietnam. <laughs> I, I ended up in the jungles of Panama, of all places, uh, my next assignment. Oh, wow. And, That's um, a big change then. Yeah, it was. I, I, I was assigned to, um, to come back to uh, a, a leg unit. Um, I oh. was assigned to go to a leg unit in Virginia. And... Uh, at that time, they were cutting back all the special forces. It was around 1973. We had already signed the peace treaty. The deal was cut. You know, they were going to allow South Vietnam to become independent. North Vietnam was going to be their way. As you know how that went, that was like a backstab in 95. They went in and rolled over the country. But I was back in 93. I finally ets from the military. Uh, ets is an old acronym meaning inter of in end tour of service in other words you get out yeah and um i could not come home i tried coming home it was horrible um no i didn't have anybody spit on me or anything like that but it was the fact that you were coming home from vietnam physically and that was it and um the questions asked for the first 15 years after that were um why did you go and, of course, you know, the question, why did you go, was never in my family's um, uh, <laughs> repertoire. And the other one was, um, do you think we should have been there? And that <laughs> question was never a question in my mind either. Um, and you never want to ask, you never want to ask a Vietnam veteran uh, w about losing the war. 
you yeah. know, because uh, I can tell you for a fact that we didn't lose that war. You know, we, meaning the soldiers on the ground, the 2,700,000 that actually set foot on the ground, uh, the 6,000 plus nurses that set foot on the ground, the, uh, the ones who never came home, the 58,000, we didn't lose that war. Now, the reality is uh, propaganda kills. And so we see the same kind of stuff today. But anyway, I came home. I lived in the jungle for another year uh, after getting out of, it, out of the army. Um, I just was not ready to come home. And I think you're beginning to see um, the stage being set for post-traumatic stress disorder, which didn't exist at that time. Yeah. Well, it, but it wasn't wanted, termed anyway. It existed. No. I just don't think that there was a term out there for it. You know? No, I wanted. I still believe that I had a mission. Uh, I wanted to get the job done, right. and I wanted to to do it in a form that was a good thing. And I saw a good thing uh, in medicine. Remember, I said I wanted to be like that guy. Yeah. And so I came back. Uh, finally, made my way back to the United States, um, and. I got into a reserve unit, and uh, it was the 12th Special Forces. And at that point, I was the uh, commo. <laughs> it was they needed guys in commo, and um, wasn't much going on. And I said maybe this might be an opportunity to apply to go back in and maybe get the uh, a slot for, to become a Special Forces medic. And they said, yeah, fine. And that was it. That was my the. It was the right path. Um, I was fortunate. And only drawback was I knew it was a real smart guy program. And remember my grade point average? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and so uh, uh, I knew, I thought, man, the only way that I'm going to get through that program, special forces, it was a, um, about a year long, was I'm going to have to outwork everybody. I mean, I'm not going to cut myself one day slack at all. And uh, of the 64 guys that started in the basic portion, that's the 91A, the 91B, and the uh, the 300F1, which the, the nomenclature of that at that time, of the 64 that was started, there's only seven that finished. Oh, my God. Wow. And, well, that's um, a huge attrition right there. Yeah, it was, uh, for one reason or other. Um, and the, uh, the final day that I graduated, uh, from the special forces medical program, that was 19, I think it was December, 1973. Um, the night before graduation, I was, did not know whether I was going to graduate or not. That's how close <laughs> I was. Uh, I don't think I took a day off. I studied my ass off. I was had really wonderful uh, peers with me who wanted that dream, who wanted to be valuable on the team, who wanted the ability to make life different for a lot of people. And so the uh, my grade point average turned out to be 85.8, which was good. I wouldn't have known. The honor graduate was 86. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you never know. You just have to keep plugging away. Yeah. And, uh, I can, I can tell you about, 
how wonderful the program is, how hard it is. I'm sure other people have talked about it. I know that listeners over there are dying to know about the Special Forces Medic and the world's best um, at point of injury, uh, tip of the spear responders to trauma. They are by far the best. Well, I want to get into some of that. And of course, one of the things Phil and I talked about is this will not be a single podcast because we, he's got so much information that we can cover. But I think it would be fascinating at some point, Phil, uh, on one of the po- uh, future podcasts that we do, that maybe you get into that whole training and that aspect during that era because, you know, training has evolved over time, mainly because of you know, things that you learn in the combat um, period, you know, from medical training or even out here on the streets and EMTs and, you know, medicine itself uh, grows and expands in knowledge and such every day, especially now with uh, technology. But I think it would be fascinating to even understand, you know, you early guys, the types of training and stuff that you went through at that early period to get that long tab. So we'll definitely get into that story because I think it's going to be – that could probably be a whole episode by itself in comparison with today's training and what you do now. Well, that'd be great. And the long tap didn't exist back then. Right, right. <laughs> and uh, it was the flash is what it was called. If you had the flash, then you were qualified as special for. Um, but those, uh, those are great stories. I want to get into going back specifically into when you were with... The Mike Force? Yeah, when you were with uh, 3rd Mobile Strike Force and... Um, you know, evading the North Vietnamese ambush? Um, yeah, it was worse than just an ambush. It was um, kind of like uh, the history of that. And I, the way I got into that, <clears throat> um, the first six months of my uh, tours in Vietnam, when I processed into Nha Trang, Nha Trang was uh, the Special Forces headquarters, 5th Group, 5th Special Forces, and so you process in, and um, they ask you uh, in the public information office, they said, do you have any experience in journalism? And when I was actually in, uh, in college, in junior college, after I bombed out from the other college, the, uh, I studied journalism and photography. I loved those. And I said, yeah, I was a feature editor on the college paper, and I did some photo shows and and they said, well, would you consider coming and working with PIO for a period of time if your unit will allow you to, to, uh, to go? And I, I realized that, you know, I was so valuable uh, with my high-speed security clearance and uh, what I was doing, which was really clandestine stuff uh, inside special forces. And um, I told them, I said, you know, I'd love to come over, but because of all of this, they can't, you know, they can't do without me. And so... Uh, the next day, I was working in PIO. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because they uh, they pick up the phone, I guess, and uh, made that happen, huh? <laughs> yeah, the you know Army Security Agency inside said, that, "Hey, look, you know we can let you go. You know, just do a story about us too, and uh, you know we'll we'll lend you to them for a period of time, and uh, you know don't get captured, <laughs> <laughs> nothing like that." And right. so, what the beauty of that was. I uh, had a very high clearance. I mean, uh, I don't know if those things exist anymore. It's like top secret crypto, special intelligence. And uh, so it allowed me to look at intelligence that a lot of people in the PIO, public information, with the Green Beret magazine, 
which doesn't exist anymore, a real classic heritage, the Greenberry Magazine, uh, what I could do is go in and look at the big board, uh, the order of battle, um, of where all the camps and special forces were and all of the enemy transmitters that were coming up around them. So we were watching the transmitters and copying their code. And we knew everything about them. And so I would look at the big board and look at the camps that most likely were going to get hit. And so being young and invincible, I decided that, hey, I'll just go over. I had my my Mac V card that allowed me to get on to any flight anywhere and take my cameras and go do a story. And so I went out to every place I could look look like that we hadn't done a story on. And um, and that's where I would go. So I went to places. What year was this? This was uh, 1969. Okay. That's what I was thinking. <clears throat> so not too long after the Tet Offensive, things are getting really heavy. Yeah, January was the Tet Offensive. I arrived in, in March. Okay. So everybody's still pretty tense. And um, it, the day that I arrived in Vietnam, it was kind of like uh, the article in the newspaper said, uh, Nixon um, bringing home 25,000 troops. So I thought, well, you know, I got here too late. The war's over. <laughs> 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 which, uh, you know, after they had settled it down for me, you know, <laughs> yeah, it didn't turn out that way. But no. um, um, it seemed like always when you're the last ones going out, everybody picks on you going out the door. And that's exactly what it was. But the, um, the fact is I was working um, as a combat photographer and journalist well, with the Special Forces of the Green Bray magazine. And it was an assignment like uh, you would – you would love that kind of assignment because it got you out to all the places where nobody could get to and there was always something going down. And so that's how I made my introduction to the Mike Force, which I'll talk to you about in just a second. So, I mean, that had to have been pretty uh, fascinating in and of itself because, I mean, you're walking around, you know, wearing at this time frame, I guess, a Green Beret. And so you're able to fit in. Uh, you're highly respected. You're coming from this magazine, which, of course, you know, we all love to be published uh, in some way, shape or form. So here's a ready made opportunity, of course, you know, with you coming in the door. But again, you had to have instant respect with those that you were about ready to walk into and talk with. Well, the the respect was uh, not instant. And it was like, uh, no, I didn't really? have that. <laughs> no, not at all. Because, uh, for example... Um, I, I flew into a camp called Bounard and uh, I was going to do a story on that. I knew the enemy transmitters were coming up all around and third mobile strike force, uh, had a camp called Maria that they were just set up right next to the camp because they knew the place was going to get hit. And so the mobile strike force had, had come in and they were three battalions. Um, and so I went over and walked in the talk, the tactical operations center, and I was, uh, you know, kind of strutting my stuff. I had my tiger fatigues coming on and my, my cameras. And I explained to this uh, sergeant uh, inside the talk, this uh, underground bunker with uh, sandbags and everything. I said, you know, I'm from uh, Public Information from the Green Beret Magazine. And I'm here to do a story. And the guy looked around me and says, okay, uh, specialist, stand over there out of the way. We've got plenty going on right now. Just hold your horses and stand out of the way. 
And you could hear the crack on the radio as the static was breaking. And there were guys truly screaming. Uh, they were getting hit. And um, I was just overpowered. I thought, oh, what, my God, what have I done here? And who's this little sergeant? You know, I better do what he says. And there were people scurrying around. The radios were cracking. We got radios all over the place. And um, uh, so they weren't really interested in PIO. They weren't interested in me. They had guys' lives on the line. These guys had been in contact for two, three, four days a week in the field. They got overrun. Uh, their, one of the battalions got overrun the, the night before. They had so many wounded and killed. Uh, at that time, there were already 54 uh, of our Cambodians missing in action. There were numerous killed. Um, they put in recon elements uh, to try to find the enemy location. These guys would go in in teams of two Americans and four, <clears throat> four Cambodians, and they drop them in places. And the stories of that after, after action report just kind of floored me 50 years later, realizing what I was in on. And uh, anyway, so I'll tell you a little bit more about how it evolved. Um, and as it turned out, you know, remember I told you about the little sergeant standing there. That was, his name was uh, Lee Mize, Ole Mize. And uh, he was a major. And uh, you can't tell by rank because he didn't wear none. <laughs> and, uh, and he stood all of about... Uh, I think about five foot six, you know, the epitome of a special forces soldier, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, five yeah. foot six. I look like a <laughs> young little guy. Uh, Lee Mize had already won the medal of honor at that point. Yeah. Wow. Uh, from Korea. And so this is the kind of guys that I was surrounded by next to him was another guy <laughs> named Billy wall. Billy Waugh went on later to write the book um, uh, Chasing the Jackal. It was uh, his hunt and discovery of Carlos the Jackal, his identifying Carlos the Jackal, and ultimately their capture of this guy. That's crazy. Uh, Billy Waugh went on to work with uh, Central Intelligence Agency and uh, had a shot on uh, a guy that if he had taken that one shot, uh, could have changed the course of history. If you can imagine, one shot changed the course of history. Now, there was one shot, you know, which led us into World War I, but uh, this was Billy Waugh, and the shot, of course, was on bin Laden. And oh. he had that shot. So this was before 9-11. Yes. You know? <laughs> I'll let Billy tell his own stories, but uh, if you ever get a chance to interview him, he is really something else. He's about 90 years old right now, and uh, these guys were my mentors as a young man. And they were all bigger than life then. Uh, there were others in that group, uh, a guy named uh, Henry Bailey, who I really respect. And I've got a lot of pictures of him that someday if his family is listening, please contact me so I can send you some pictures of your grandfather, a true hero. So all these guys were leaders. He got the, I think, the Distinguished Service Cross, this operation I'm going to talk about. But Anyway, that's a little bit about <laughs> a little bit about prelude going into this operation, which I got a lot to tell you about. Yeah. So tell me what happens next. I mean, you're sitting there, you're listening to the crack of the radio, <clears throat> you're the right in the thick of the things. What what was the next thing that went down? Um, we're setting up to go in and get these guys out, 
And I say, look, I got to get in, you know. And they said, okay, um, you know, grab a chopper and off you go. So that's what I did. With, and, the, with uh, the extraction team. Yeah. Yeah. To go get these guys out. And so I was just, uh, you know, there with my cameras. And my instructions were, you know, keep shooting, keep shooting, keep shooting. You know, we're not issuing you an M16 coming out of PIO. We you got a 45 if you want it, but your job is to document the action. Holy cow. And so um, <laughs> we're going in. We're going in to get these guys uh, out. And things had calmed down a little bit. And um, some of the story that I wrote on this, you can see the images of me going in in the chopper and all these guys wounded. They're, they've got them all separated. Um, the guys with you know, bandages on their eyes are leading them one way. They've got bodies over here and crates of weapons. And, um, and so the chopper's going in. And you can see the smoke um, that they've put out marking the uh, the LZ. This chopper pilot sets everybody down on the on the south end. Everybody's on the north end waiting. And he's actually drawing fire because we knew that they were that they were surrounded by the a regiment size. In other words, over a thousand uh, that they'd already identified with informants and not informants with uh, with uh, uh, with guys that brought in their Chuhoi leaflets. These are guys who would uh, what do you call that uh, Hoichans. These are guys who had, who were North Vietnamese who who had defected, and so we got these guys, and um, they were interviewing him, trying to find out the identification of the unit. It turned out to be the Fifth VC Division. Now, Division is a pretty big group. Yeah. Right? They were grabbed onto the tail of the of the tiger, truly, and that's why they're getting all chopped up. Um, and so, anyway, chopper pilot sets everybody down. He draws fire. Uh, but before they fire, he picks up and moves. So the VC and had moved over that area and he lands and starts picking everybody up. And we got a whole bunch of choppers, by the way, they're coming in like crazy. And this was the first cab that was supporting us. We had our own, own group. Um, I can't remember what our unit was, the choppers, uh, it'll come to mind some other time, but, um, so they're loading all these guys up with weapons. I'm taking photos like crazy. And uh, all these muddy weapons and, um, and you know, they got bodies on there and people jumping on the helicopters that, uh, that were out of the formation. This, we're talking about Cambodians, yeah. not Americans. And um, so uh, the loads start going out. They, they're loading the choppers out and, and uh, they're, they're moving and moving and moving. And, uh, and you're getting down to the last group. And the last group is maybe maybe 50 of us, maybe less. And uh, I heard out of the tree line, you could hear this coming out of the tree line. It's a B-40 rocket. And this thing hits in the cockpit of this Huey, which is sitting right next to me, crashes through there and hits his pilot in the head. And, and um, the co-pilot hits the collective and uh, the the rotors on this thing lift up at a 45 degree angle with all the torque possible guys on the collective and the co-pilot takes it out and everybody else picks up and this thing is moving out like crazy. And at the same time in the tree line, you can hear this bump, 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 bump all around us. And the bump, bump, bump was the 61 millimeter mortars 
that they're getting ready to pour it's down on us. They had great yeah. comm all the way around. They had great artillery. They had all the mortars in place. They were really, really hot shit professional. Yeah. And they had us pinned down. And at that moment in time, all these mortars in there, and it's dead silence. And then they started hitting. And we're scurrying all over the ground. Um, I... Uh, uh, I was in a small uh, foxhole. There were th three cambodes in there with me. And you can hear the rounds cracking all the way around you. And um, I could hear the VC yelling out in the tree line. I didn't know what they were saying. And there's a, uh, a wounded guy. And they were saying, boxy, boxy. And I said, oh, shit, you know. Um, I got to go out and grab this guy. who's about 20, 30 yards out. And I grab him and run out and grab this guy. The rounds are still coming in. They're cracking around. And I get him by the get him by the belt, and I get a rucksack, and I throw this over my shoulder. I got my weapon, my cameras. I'm not taking any pictures, and uh, I'm running with this guy. And you know, you can't pick a guy up and run. Yeah. <laughs> Except for the autonomic nervous system kicks in. You know, you got all that adrenaline on board. Your heart is racing. Your eyes are dilated, and you're like a really strong. And so I was running with this guy. <clears throat> and I uh, finally got him back to where I thought I was supposed to be, and there's nobody there. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Everybody's gone. And uh, uh, so I drug him, and I drug him. And uh, and everybody's gone. And I was dragging a guy that I couldn't drag anymore. Oh, man. And so at this point, all the choppers have left. You guys have just taken all of this artillery and mortar fire. Um, you're, you're now just kind of, I guess, disorganized and disoriented a bit, um, I'm assuming, at this point. Did you guys find the two Americans? Was one of the guys you were dragging one of the Americans, or was it a Cambodian? A uh, Cambodian. Okay. Uh, and so uh, I actually did hear some folks uh, up ahead and um, uh, still dragging this guy by his belt now, and I'm going real slow. And it was a choice of uh, him or me. Mm. And um, so it was me. Yeah. And so was the voices uh, Cambodian that you heard up ahead? No, they were Americans over there. Okay. And uh, the uh, the thing is, I left him. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, it it haunted me. Yeah. Uh, always, uh, because I remember looking at him, and him looking at me. And so anyway, I I did find somebody, and uh, we snaked our way out of there. Uh, it was uh. Henry Bailey and a, a couple others that uh, I finally found. And he was able to organize a group. Uh, there were others that, that seemed to come out of the woodwork. And the affection that we had for each other at that moment in time, that we hadn't been killed, hadn't been captured. And it was the, the usual kind of stuff, you know. Uh, the guys that had been teammates there for many, many years through many, many battles, 
they would literally hug and kiss each other. And uh, the thing is, you sweet motherfucker, you yeah. know, good to see you, <laughs> you know. And those are the things that you do um, and the comradeship that uh, that was there. So anyway, we <clears throat> we knew that we were going to be overrun, uh, outnumbered about 50 or so. Oh, the numbers against us was later determined to be about a regiment. that's probably close to three to 500 on our tail. Mm-hmm. And so um, our little group, uh, as I said, moved our way through the jungle. I literally was carrying uh, wounded uh, in, in litters that we'd uh, installed there. <clears throat> um, and um, behind us, <clears throat> you could hear uh, the gunfire. And I say behind us, I'm talking 50 yards behind us. And we're throwing... Uh, uh, smoke grenades out to mark our position. You could see this stuff spiraling up through the jungle canopy and the gunships were coming in just above the tree line uh, because the VC had known over the many years, the Viet Cong, North Vietnamese regulars, they knew that if they were too far away that they were going to get picked off by the gunships. So they were right on their tail, hugging as close as they could. And uh, as those gunships came over full auto, uh, the canopy began to crumble and the fire streamed down from burning tree limbs and the cordite, you could smell it. You could see the purple smoke. It smelled like jungle. It smelled like sweat. It smelled like guys scared to death and running and the firing going on right on your tail end. And so we were carrying these guys and I remember as a young man at that point in time, seeing it in my mind's eye. And I asked, God, let me see the sunshine one more day. Just let me see the sunshine one more day. I was on the dirt trying to climb these ravines and trying to hang on. And these guys in the hammocks on poles and the blood was flowing back down over me as I'd slip and fall. And I was crying out in my mind to see the sunshine one more day because I knew that if I could slide that one little prayer through, my strong legs were going to carry me a long way from this horrible, god-awful situation, and I'd be alive. That was my secret prayer, but uh, it was Bailey and others, their leadership, keeping everybody together and finding the alternate uh, rendezvous point, our link up with the first cav that were out there somewhere. And it took us some time, but uh, actually we made it there. And uh, <clears throat> as we made our way through the jungle, over a, a half a day or so, <clears throat> the rain was coming down, and I saw this guy underneath a bush. <clears throat> and this guy looked back at me, kind of in shock, as we marched on through with our Cambodians, our wounded. And I looked at this guy and there was something so strange about him. And he was covered in mud. I couldn't tell whether what uniform he was wearing, but he's all covered in mud and dirty. And this guy was a forward perimeter for the calf that we were linking up with. And I couldn't figure out why it was so strange that I was looking because when I looked at him, his eyes were round, and I knew there was something that just didn't fit all my cambodes. This was a round eye. This was an American. And I knew that we were going to make it out of there. 
And one more foxhole, and there were two Americans, two round eyes. Oh, wow. And we were coming back into our own lines. And it was a moment where I knew I was going to live. And we, uh, we got into um, one of the big uh, Chinooks that was out there. It carried about, I think, 30, 40 passengers. And uh, we loaded our wounded in there and whatnot. And as I, as I rested there with everybody coming in, I looked over and a guy was being carried in. And he was wounded. And to my surprise, it was a guy I left. Oh, my God, Phil. And uh, I knew that maybe my prayer went a little bit further. And uh, yeah. so we got out of there. And uh, as you can probably sense that my heart was torn out many times over the years, but I always wanted to be that guy, that medic. And it came from days like that when I saw our medics getting back in, taking care of all of our wounded. We had 30 killed and we had 140 wounded. We had 180 wounded. According to our after action, I wouldn't have known. And uh, that was the day that my life changed forever. Yeah, I, I could totally see that. And so the guy that you had to leave behind that you got caught up with at the very end there, how was it that he got linked back up with you guys? How I was have no it? idea. You never, so you I never found no the story? Idea. Really? Oh, my gosh. I, I have no idea. It bugged me for years to just know. I mean, of course, having the satisfaction of knowing that he made it is is one thing. But, I mean, how did he get there? By the grace of God, I mean, how did that man all of I a have, sudden, you know. I have no idea. Somebody obviously crossed my path. Uh, yeah. Maybe there was another camboat out there that uh, that came in behind me. I have no idea. Well, I'm so glad that you actually had the opportunity to see him. You know what I mean? Because then you didn't have yeah. to live with that later on. Even if he would have been rescued, you may not have known that. But the fact that you were able to see that, at least I would think, give you, you know, gave you some closure. Because uh, that was a very difficult decision for anybody. Well, unfortunately, or fortunately, it was a window into my soul also. Yeah. Uh, something I never wanted to see in myself. And um, it was a reprieve that I had. Um, and anyway, that's, <laughs> that's part of uh, <laughs> that day. <laughs> and that was one day of many that followed after that uh, because – uh, ultimately, I went back, uh, did my story, and uh, um, I was—I uh, could not sleep for for a long time after that. I uh, I did the story, and shortly thereafter, about two or three months after, I was reassigned back to uh, uh, operational units. And guess where I got assigned to? <laughs> <laughs> The third mobile strike the exact force. Exact same place. <laughs> Were some of those – was the major there when you got there? And Oh, yeah. 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 All the greats were there, all the, all the, all the incredible guys. It, I ended up a place called, called Rang Rang. It was another operation with the third mobile after that. And that, that wasn't near as bad. I mean, <laughs> but uh, that's the, that was part of it. And, uh, you know, when you talk about a quick reaction force, that was uh, – one of various mic forces. We had the Natrang mic force, uh, 
and of the operational units with special forces, there were some incredible operations like uh, CCN, CCC. These are uh, some of the, the acronyms for those teams. Most of the guys that are on those teams were all bigger than life. So, uh, you know, I was my part, I was like, uh, everybody was a mentor for me. And uh, well, obviously. <laughs> Obviously, you had some really good mentors because, I mean, just, you know, I just want to share a little bit of information and we're going to get more into this in future episodes. But, you know, Phil here, Phil Gonzalez is really uh, being very humble. He completed two tours of the 5th Special Forces Group in Vietnam from 1969 to 71, was assigned to the 3rd Mobile Strike Force. You know, again, uh, he just mentioned that similar to today's quick reaction forces. It was on various A-teams scattered from Northern Highlands to the Mekong Delta he retired as a Mustang first lieutenant. So back in those days, you get uh, good old fracked up to, you know, as, a, as an officer in 1996. Uh, while in the Special Forces, you held the MOS of 91 Bravo, which at that time frame was the senior medical sergeant, original designator for the 18 Delta. You were also an 18 Foxtrot intelligence sar sergeant, an 18 Echo, a communications sergeant. You know, for the, the next 50 years, both in and out of the military, primarily in training guerrilla armies, but also in counter-narcotics and medical operations throughout the war zones in Burma, Cambodia, Colombia, Sarajevo, uh, Salvador, Panama, uh, with the Nicaraguan Contras, and most recently four years as med medical officer in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, currently, right now, for the last six years, you've been an advanced medical instructor with the Joint Army-Navy Special Operations Medical Training Center. So... I mean, let's face it, you you met individuals that obviously throughout your career, and especially in this very beginning, made a major impact on your life and on decisions that you made thereafter. Somebody and someone helped set that tone for where you are today. Yeah, I had great mentors. Um, and um, the point where you actually find what you want to do in life, the decisions that you make, you um, you know, <laughs> looking back, you know, what you just read on my bio there, looking back, um, you know, most people would say, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I'd do it the same way. I would never do it the same way. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I would, I'd be a stockbroker or something like that, you know, <laughs> uh, not really. I, uh, I always wanted to be that medic and, and I think you the passion that you sense from me actually grew from there and it that uh it led into a different mindset in special forces um it's uh you take the challenge and um it's uh you don't mind taking the ship out of port just because you might sink the ship let's put it that way yeah uh the ship is there to get you where you need to go and fulfill your destiny and that's uh that's what the medical profession with special forces. That's the kind of people uh, that I was um, privileged to have met of those men and uh, of the, like I said, 200 2.7 million who served in Vietnam. There are only about 23% still alive. Uh, all those mentors that I met, most of them are gone now. Um, they kind of left it to me to carry the flag on. You know, the, yeah. uh, <laughs> the, <clears throat> and so I did the best I could, um, of those that served in Vietnam, there are maybe 300,000 still alive. So my goal 
is to uh, be the last one standing. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, that's how you should look at it. Absolutely. Well, not only that, but you're doing, I think, a great service um, to those who did serve and you served along with, like you said, by, you know, training the next generation. Uh, you're imparting your knowledge and your experiences and stuff, which I think there are a lot of similarities too eerily uh, between, you know, Vietnam and the last 18 years and the war we've been engaged in. Um, so it's uh, it's really good to, to have individuals like you that have been there, done that, and can really give some good mentoring to this next generation. Um, it's kind of fun. Uh, I do feel that I've come 360 degrees. Uh, and then I did come back home. And this is one of the things that actually brought me back home. Because uh, after Vietnam, the next 50 years or so were truly seeking out um, those that needed uh, medical attention in areas that uh, most people would never consider going to. And that's what the satisfaction came from. Uh, and making it happen underneath uh, uh, in areas controlled by insurgents. Uh, bringing medicine and and getting people, uh, stealing them back from Beth's door. I really love to do that. Yeah, that was great. But um, recently, I uh, just addressed one of our returning uh, special operations uh, or sustainment course medics group, mm -hmm. and I asked my students. There's about 50 people there. How many are my previous students? And about uh, 50, 60 percent of them raised their hand. Oh my gosh! So we're looking at two years out. And uh, they're coming back more and more. And so it's uh, probably close to a couple thousand uh, of SF medics and uh, uh, special operations combat medics, the SACA medics, are, have all been my students. And uh, that makes me feel pretty good. Yeah, so I'm, I'm passing the, the holy grail you know, along. I'm sure there are people that are going to be listening to this episode that's going to th say the same thing. Hey, I remember, Phil, from when I went through there. And I would also say for those who are listening, who are thinking about going to special operations through the Army or Navy's uh, Medical Training Center, you know, you'll get a chance to meet Phil, I'm sure, through some of the, the training that you go through and uh, hear uh, some additional stories as well. But I look forward to getting you back on the uh, the show, Phil, and going down some of these uh, other areas that we can talk about, even you know more within Vietnam or outside of that in Burma or Colombia, uh, Salvador, and all those types of things. I think there's a lot of good stories within that that we can share and impart some knowledge on. So once again, thank you for uh, taking the time out of your busy schedule and joining us here on the, the Mentors Military Podcast. All right. Well, uh, uh, great. I do appreciate it. And uh, a lot of fun. I uh, hope uh, those people listening um, do understand that uh, the veterans coming out of Vietnam uh, are really special. I know that today, most people, about 80 to 90 percent, uh, know that already. Um, and it brings great satisfaction for us to see how much appreciated our military is today, even though less than 1% of the American population even serves. Uh, and so our special operations folks, which number, I think, uh, I don't know the exact number, like 25,000, something like that. <clears throat> those aren't, those aren't secret numbers, by the way. Yeah. Um, of that number, uh, there's only about 
1% or less of them that even are special operations medics or SOCOM medics. And since we have a low uh, number, that those guys in my classes are one hundredth of one percent uh, of the American population know that they exist, and they're special. The sad thing, and I know we're getting short on time here, but the sad thing is that um, when our guys go back into civilian life, nobody knows what they did and how much they sacrificed for the country and how much they know. And so they have to go back and stand at the end of the line trying to get into medical schools. They have to stand at the end of the line trying to get into PA schools, nursing schools, because there's a lot of folks that never served that had plenty of time to study with a lot of mom and dad backing them up, great pedigrees and everything. Yep. And our guys and gals stand at the end of the line. So don't ever let that happen if you've got a medic or a SOCOM graduate or a nurse from the Army or anything like that or special ops Navy. Uh, don't forget them, that they, they paid a different price. So that's what I want uh, a lot of pe people to address if you ever get a chance. Anyway, thanks a lot for having me.